0: You're listening to Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Fabian Krobog, founder and CIO of Northwall Capital, a special situations private capital investor operating across Western Europe. We talk about the process and challenges of building an asset management firm from scratch and also the opportunities for private capital and growth investors in Europe. Enjoy. Fabian, really nice to talk to you. You're a special situations investor. The whole world feels a little bit like a special situation at the moment, are you seeing a lot of opportunity? Are you busy at NorthWall Capital?
1: Uh, absolutely. Nice, nice to talk to you as well, Ross. Thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me to come and speak uh, speak to you today. Um, y- yes, we're seeing a lot of um, opportunity today, post COVID, and our team is probably busier than we've ever been before. Um, but that's not necessarily a direct function of the COVID nineteen outbreak um, across the world. Um, It's a function of a few things coming together from our business having now reached a scale where, you know, it's operating, generating interesting deal flow and more deal flow that we can handle, Uh, but also with a market overlay, um, you know, where there's just more dislocation and more of a requirement for capital uh, in European credit markets uh, than there was before. Um, You know, when I, but it doesn't necessarily come from a, uh, Covid-19 as indirectly caused by Covid-19, because what we are not seeing, what we you know are not experiencing, is this wave of distress uh, that could have that could have come but uh, never came.
0: Well, we can we can talk about the market in more detail. I'm actually really interested in in how people sat, set up asset management businesses as businesses. Actually, you've not been going all that long, and it sounds like you've been growing through this very strange period. Could you, do you want w- walk us through a little bit of your journey?
1: Yeah, so um, I started my career as an uh, investment banker at Bear Stearns in New York City uh, in the early 2000s um, and uh, moved to Europe uh, about 16, 17 years ago um, and have worked on the buy side for most of that time. I was with a team for nine years uh, that ended up spinning out of a European multi-strategy hedge fund to launch a, a credit fund, a distressed and special situations credit fund, uh, just after the, the onset of the, the global financial crisis. And um, I was always very intrigued by this idea of launching really any business, but in particular, a credit business. And so I put my hand up at the very beginning. I said, I'll very happily order the coffee. I will very happily do the investor presentation, you know. but I wanted to have exposure really to the whole breadth of what it takes to launch a business. And I was very fortunate uh, at that time that uh, the two uh, founding partners and, and CIOs of that business gave me the opportunity to uh, really um, uh, learn by doing, so to speak, um, and help set one of these things up. The irony of this situation um, is that nine years later, after starting to work with them, when I set out to do it myself, um, I really understood kind of the difficulty from a whole new perspective. When it is your name uh, on the door alongside a team, of course, it all contributes, uh, you realize that you have to suspend rationality a little bit any time that you decide you want to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so the steps that were required to do this involved, you know, building a team, uh, raising the capital and finding interesting deals to, to pursue, of course.
0: You know, I completely agree with the suspending rationality part, having set up a few businesses myself. It's not, and that must be particularly different, difficult for someone who is also so close to quantitative analysis and objective, rational um, thinking to, well, twice now take a leap into the unknown, which is like you can't you can't manage your risks as an entrepreneur because you don't even know what they are. You can't. But you can manage the risks that you're
1: aware of. Uh, and you can try and avoid to make avoid making the same mistakes that you've made before, which is an important lesson. Uh, we try not to make mistakes twice. Um, but there were a couple of really valuable lessons that I learned um, from the first time, our first experience launching launching the firm where I was uh, previously at. Uh, the first lesson is it takes a lot longer than you expect. Uh, it costs a lot more than you expect, and you'll raise a lot less than you expect. <laughs> when you kind of incorporate these three lessons, I think what you will do, or what we decided to do, is rather than run around with a pretty presentation that said, give us half a billion dollars of your of your stakeholders' capital, uh, and we'll take care of the rest, we were more humble about it. So we started actually on a deal-by-deal model where we just went to our piece and say, Here's the fund, we're happy to talk about that, but why don't we talk about this deal? And therefore getting people to engage on in individual transactions. That also helps with the team because rather than selling to the people that are trying to join the team and esoteric concept of a fund by a certain day, really what you're saying is, don't worry about the fund, but do you like the deal? And it also addresses the final problem, which is the revenue problem by generating revenues really from day zero or from the time that you close your first deal. So that has worked remarkably well for us. So since the first deal in November 2017, there was a two and a half million euro transaction. We have now done between 30 and 40 deals and our firm manages almost 700 million euros and is now growing very rapidly.
0: And you're still on the deal by deal structure?
1: No, no, we've uh, transitioned the deal by deal structure. We've raised two single strategy funds that grew out of individual deals. And we're currently in the fundraising process for uh, or we are in the market with our european opportunities fund uh, which is a co-mingled master fund um and um and are investing very actively from that and seeing a lot of opportunity
0: well that sounds pretty quick progress to me from did you say 2017 so
1: it was, uh, you know, it, it was hard work. Um, you know, it took a long time. So 2017, 2021 yeah. was three and a half years. You know, we held the first closing probably about three years after uh, you know we done, started doing our first transaction. Um, that's a long time if you're not doing other things in the meantime. But, you know, when we closed our European Opportunities Fund, the flagship fund, when we held the first closing, uh, we had already closed over 20 uh, individual transactions. And so, you know, we're never worried about when is the next investor coming in or, you know, when, you know, when are we going to raise X amount of money because we have a stable base of revenues.
0: Yeah. And you've got a track record to sell as well. So you're not just selling yourselves.
1: And now you're talking about track record of deals you've closed, deals you've originated, you know, and you have a team that's been sitting in the same room for four years. So. Um, uh, yes, it's been, uh, we've been very lucky. It's been very hard work, but we've had a great team and very supportive investors.
0: But a deal that's done is a, is a past deal that I'm not in on. How do you, um, what, what's, your, what's your line about your differentiating angles and qualities when you're prosecuting your strategies?
1: So what we tell our investors is that we provide private capital to non-standard Western European situations, usually in the form of a credit instrument, and usually um, with some element of security and downside protection. However, we would never raise a cent of money if we weren't able to originate some truly differentiated ideas and got people interested and got people talking about ideas that they don't really see anywhere else.
0: So can you give me an example? I can give you many
1: examples. (laughs) Um, I can give you many examples. I think one thing that we're looking at at the moment, which we think is very interesting, um, is uh, the provision of credit lines to um, amazon.com uh, roll-up strategies. Um, as you might've heard is, you know, the likes of Thrasio and other venture capital backed businesses have, you know, started to acquire these amazon.com resellers uh, for fairly low multiples. Um, we think that's an interesting equity story, but we always struggle to underwrite, you know, the equity valuations put on, onto the market by BC investors. So we feel more comfortable in the credit position and we effectively help these businesses acquire smaller businesses by providing a portion uh, of the required
0: capital for each transaction and still generating, you know, interesting risk adjusted returns to our investors. So this is a trend that had actually passed passed me by. So what kind of businesses are these Amazon resellers? Are they all kind of all offshore, unbranded
1: manufacturers or? You have to be, but you know, when you're on amazon.com, you might not realize it, but two thirds of um, the sellers on Amazon are what's called FBA businesses, fulfilled by Amazon businesses. And what that means is um, it's an entrepreneur. It could be a couple in a small town in Germany uh, that has uh, developed a hiking pole at a factory in China, has never been to the factory in China, but has that hiking pole is being sold on Amazon. It goes into an Amazon warehouse and Amazon then you know, processes it, ships it out to the customers, deals with the returns um, and handles all of the billing and all, all the other factors. Um, The interesting bit here is that these individuals might not have the expertise to go from hiking poles to hiking boots or to acquire excess inventory in order to uh, achieve some economies of scale. And so when an aggregator buys them, they're often able to drive real growth within uh, the brand and reduce some of the Amazon uh, cost line items. But interestingly, uh, can then also over time potentially branch out onto other platforms and really build an e-commerce business around that. And you will notice this on Amazon. The website is becoming a little bit more professionalized in the listing quality, the ad quality, et cetera. And that's partially driven probably by these these aggregators.
0: They sound like interesting opportunities, which makes me wonder, you know, your sources of, uh, I guess, inspiration on the one hand, ideas, and but then deal flow and where you get where you get your opportunities from. So this opportunity actually
1: has now become, I don't wanna call it mainstream, but it has become a very large opportunity because there are a few companies that have grown to prominence. So we don't have necessarily a huge amount of secret sauce here. What's interesting about us is that we actually have been involved in this for over 12 months, right? And the reason that we've been involved in this for over 12 months is because we tend to go after transactions that are a little bit smaller uh, in the earlier stage of the kind of industry evolution and um, we try and engage with our counterparties and our borrowers. Where we say, look, we'll give you 10, 20, 30 million euro ticket, but then we require scaling rights. So as this business grows, you know we can grow alongside you. So how do we originate deals? Um, we have long-standing relationships across the market, which I think a lot of people uh, actually do. But we're just that little bit hungrier, I think. So. You know, we very actively manage our LinkedIn presence. We have regular emails that go out to our counterparties. Um, and you know, we proactively try and originate more and more deals within certain thematic verticals. We can use this Amazon as another example. Rather than just closing the one or two deals that come to us, we then turn it on its head and we approach everybody within that space and we say, is there a scalable opportunity here? And if yes, then we go to our investors and say, hey, we're going to put this much into the fund. But would you like to do this much in a separate single strategy fund and thereby addressing the investor's desire to pick their spots while at the same time also scaling our business over time
0: yeah i'm just trying to um get underneath what drives you and and your business and so let me try and read between the lines so you you take scaling right so it, it, i mean the way you're speaking it sounds to me like you're you're actually interested as much in the kind of the entrepreneurial growth journey, which you've been on as well as we've discussed, um, of, of, of your investments and, and being part of that as much as kind of just looking to trade in and out of something, let's say.
1: Absolutely, I'm I'm an entrepreneur, you know, deep down. And, you know, my partners at this firm who are a vital part of building this business are also people who desire, you know, to grow and build businesses and our business in particular. Um, You know, since I, you know, from university, from my college days, you know, I've always tried to start businesses. It's just something that has always interested me. And why I love investing, it is my passion and my main focus, of course, I genuinely enjoy the building of the team. You know, I enjoy the hiring processes. I enjoy the management. And I love thinking about what else could we be doing to address our investors' requirements for interesting and differentiated deal flow. And I think if we continue to always focus on what our investors ultimately want, uh, you know, we can build a really big and sustainable business around that.
0: So I described you at the start of the conversation as a special situations investor. And so far, they're special insofar as they're kind of interesting, you know, and, and differentiated. But that it's also a euphemism for kind of more distressed or underperforming situations. Is that something you... Get involved with this am i reading that the reason
1: i ended up in credit actually was while i was working for a brief period of time at goldman in london i came across a distressed investment opportunity and i thought it was a really interesting i was fairly young i was in my early 20s at the time i thought it was a really interesting way of gaining control of a business through the distressed debt um however that market has become extremely competitive it has become almost commoditized um, and it is, you know, not necessarily a place where I believe we can generate interesting risk adjusted returns. The way I try and explain this to our investors when we have these conversations is that, you know, I tend to say that Europe, uh, in, in distress investing in Europe is a market opportunity. It's not an asset class. And that window of the market opportunity opens up very briefly and then shuts again, and you will see that in particular, you know, we COVID is a great example. It never led to the wave of distress because of the government intervention, but even the decrease in trading prices was fairly short-lived. Mm-hmm. And then people had dislocation funds ready and dry powder sitting on the sidelines, and basically lifted those prices up. Um, I do believe that distress investing, you know, is interesting, can be a valuable part of kind of helping companies recover, uh, but it's just not interesting at the moment.
0: Yes, yeah, so you've got the skill set internally to do it if you want to do it, but if you don't want to do it, you're looking at, I guess, is it, would it be right to call it kind of slightly more mainstream private equity growth opportunities? Um, I wouldn't quite go that far. Okay. Right? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go that far at all,
1: right? Because um, what we really focus is on being an, an opportunistic lender in the current market yeah. environment. So we finance special situations, right? Um, whenever there's a, a private equity sponsor that sits on the other side of any transaction, um, they tend to be very sophisticated. They tend to be very intermediated transactions, and direct lenders will do that at a
0: cost of capital uh, that doesn't match our, match our cost of capital. So, if I'm a private equity guy, um, what uh, and I've, what kind of deal would I have where I would think I know who to go to for um, for some for some lending support? Fabian's my guy. Let me what let me, me of... you, let me give you let, let me get,
1: explain to you another problem that we solved recently for a borrower. Um, so our borrowers uh, tend to be not private equity backed companies. So for example, one company that we recently uh, backed, I'll give you two examples. The first one is a, um, a land developer uh, that achieved planning consent for a very large plot of land to build 1,500 homes. Unfortunately, he received that planning consent in the middle of the last August lockdown and he had to make a balancing payment to acquire the remainder, to make the balancing, the, the remaining 80% of the payment for the land, three months later, because he'd already extended it and paid a big deposit by 12 months. Markets were shut at the moment. People were on vacation and he needed to raise a fairly substantial amount of capital, you know, in really 30 to 45 days. No bank will do this deal, hmm. right? Um, we, had our doubts initially, but then we did a lot of diligence. We understood that there were credible bids for the project. We spoke to the buyers, we spoke to the planners, we and we ran a due diligence and uh, structuring process at the same time and closed a large transaction within you know 40, 40 days or so, and effectively enabled that borrower. To close on the land purchase that he otherwise would have lost, because clearly the seller would have changed his mind, kept the deposit, not sold the land now that they're planning. It.
0: Yeah, so that's very positive. And so let's jump back 20 years ago before there was a real private cr- credit market and guys like you out there. A situation like that would have been seriously distressed facing default because traditional banks couldn't jump into that space. And so I'm going to go out and say what a positive thing it is that we got this relatively new asset class that's able to be nimble in that way.
1: Correct. So we basically, the way to think of us, we sit somewhere between direct lending funds and distressed funds on the illiquid end of the credit universe. And we occupy that space um, that uh, traditional providers of capital and even the new uh, providers of capital still can't address. Um, And a direct lender will struggle with this because it's not private equity backed. It doesn't have cash flows. It's purely an asset-backed loan and, you know, um,
0: we relish in those situations. My understanding would be, therefore, that that kind of asset requires an awful lot of analysis and due diligence in order to get your head around. That's right. So So you've got to staff up with the necessary expertise to achieve that.
1: That's right. That's right. And I think that's the biggest thing that our investors, you know, struggle with or potential investors is how can you have a broad mandate to do both? you know, the Amazon lending deal and the real estate lending deal uh, on a development plot. And the reality is, is that we are credit specialists uh, and not necessarily industry specialists. So we tend to bring in um, advisors uh, that can support us. So in this particular transaction, we'll get a planning consultant to make sure that the planning consent that was received actually, you know, is executable, you know, that actually the land can be built in accordance with these, you know, with, with these consent requirements, uh, various technicalities around local council agreements, such as section 106, which deals with infrastructure, roads, schools, etc., uh, that have to be built by developers for the local council. You know, those are adhered to. Um, and so, um, but that is expertise that you can, an investment firm would very rarely have in house and that you would always um, hire in externally. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, you then also need legal exper- expertise uh, to make sure that there's no other charge, no burdens on the on the property uh, that prevents you from taking the first lien um, as well as drafting of the loan documentation. Um, and, you know, for that we use, you know, external law firms. And then when it comes to valuation, we use an external valuation firm, of course, but really we rely on our own valuation. Um, and we spend most of our time thinking around, uh, thinking about not only what's the valuation today, But what would the valuation look like you know in the event that we had to sell this piece of land in 90 days but we had to liquidate it how would we get our money back and would we get our money back and you know there's a lot of work that you can do there's some public records you know there's research you can do and then you can speak to people that would buy these plots of land so we had a good dozen or so conversations with potential purchasers of such land plots and we got very comfortable and we actually then ended up speaking to the purchaser of the land plot that had issued a, a letter of intent and confirmed with them their real intention to buy it for almost two
0: times the amount of our loan. So we felt very well protected and feel very well protected. Fabian, would you say that given your niche, but still quite broad strategy, you have um, y- your task of attracting investors is more complex?
1: You see, it's a good question actually because uh, it is. Uh, extremely, uh, it was extremely difficult, especially in the beginning. Um, and, um, you know, to convince people to give us such a broad mandate, like, like we discussed earlier, it took, you know, a good three years or so on a fully discretionary basis. But what's interesting is how our investor base has actually evolved. So in the beginning, it all started with a single individual, um, a person that uh, has since invested in every single deal that we've ever done. Um, and uh, is a senior advisor to the firm. Uh, now after, after many years, and whom we're extremely grateful for their support, but then uh, migrated to some family offices. Uh, then it became institutionalized. And now our largest investor is actually um, an Australian pension plan, right? So we've gone from people managing their own personal wealth to people managing you know, vast amounts of, of capital on behalf of a very large group of stakeholders. Um, and obviously, the investment process um, for that institutional investor, you know, is, you know, by no means simple, right? And you have to jump through quite some loops to get there.
0: Yeah, um, there are, must be economies of scale when it comes to that kind of investor relations. Once you've got one of those they're demanding very investors, tough, you want di- They're very tough on fees. There's an additional complexity facing a lot of investors in Europe, insofar as Europe is not a homogenous market. And, and if you are, prosecuting a strategy across it. You're dealing with different jurisdictions, different languages. That's harder for a small team.
1: It is and it isn't. Keep in mind, this is what we do. We have been only operating in Europe for the last 15 or so years, right? I'm half German, half Egyptian. I was born in Singapore. My younger brother was born in Belgium. I was raised in Germany, went to university in the US and live in London. Working across cultures, is what we do. We have multiple languages on the team, um, but you know, we, you know, we, you know, we have to, we have to adapt, and we, you know, over the years have developed the experience um, of dealing and resolving issues in Spain versus in Germany versus in the UK.
0: So, do you have any other examples of, you know, niche markets or asset classes that that um, that you're that you're looking at that might not look obvious from someone? looking in, but is obvious to you as an opportunity? Yeah, for sure. I
1: mean, um, you know, we, um, uh, we build a really interesting business around litigation funding um, in, in Europe. And um, interestingly, kind of fell into an entirely ESG-compliant litigation funding strategy. Um, And so um, here's kind of how it all originated. At the very beginning, what we noticed was that there was a track record of certain car manufacturers in Germany settling claims um, for individual litigations as part of the diesel emissions scandal, which we thought was a really interesting uh, potential investment opportunity because by funding these consumers to give them access to you know, the necessary litigation to seek risk recourse for the defective cars on an individual basis, um, you know, we were actually able to you know, at least identify the potential for some really interesting returns from a fairly low risk uh, standpoint because there was a very substantial settlement track record. And the reason that exists, of course, is because you know many of these car manufacturers involved in this piece of the scandal have settled very large class action litigations, you know, around the world, um, including now in Germany, and um, you know we kind of we identified that we thought there was an interesting theme around that, which was you know providing capital um, to individuals or companies uh, pursuing litigation uh, with an ESG angle. And uh, you know, it's publicly disclosed we closed a fairly substantial uh, funding line um, uh, to a law firm in the UK that has a few hundred thousand of these types of claimants whom they represent. And while we don't fund individual specific cases we structured it as a credit facility. But because we understand the individual cases very well, you know, we have the comfort that we can lend money to this company you know, add, you know, very interesting returns mm. with litigation funding risk without being kind of dependent on the binary outcome of an individual litigation. Uh, right. And then, how so we combine an understanding of the diesel emission scandal. Yeah. And uh, similar type of litigations with, you know, our desire to create appropriate risk adjusted returns for our investors from credit-like instruments.
0: Yeah. And you also mentioned an ESG angle. I mean, I think I see how it fits in, particularly with the emissions scandal, um, but I, it kind of fits in more generally so far as you are facilitating, in this case, the little guy to, you know, to get justice to some degree. There's an ethical component.
1: When, we, when I talk about ESG is really the underlying case types that we've funded, especially in relation to our UK law firm relationship, which focuses on four types of cases emissions litigation, data breach litigation. So this would relate to corporate governance failures, Um, litigation uh, around environmental disasters. So helping potential emerging markets claimants sue the parent company that caused a dam breach somewhere around the world in their home country. And then medical device liability claims or devices that continue to be sold after it was found that, you know, they really, um, you know, were damaging to individuals. And so um, those all to us fall within, you know, an ESG focused context, uh, while maybe corporate litigation, you know, one corporate against the other for a warranty claim might not necessarily fall under that same banner.
0: What kind of proportion of your business does this constitute? So we um, have
1: our first vintage of our litigation fund um, probably makes up around 20% of our total AUM as a firm. Um, and it's now fully deployed um, and um, you know, on track to generate some really interesting money, multiple type of returns provided that we continue to be as successful as we have been on, um, or rather our lawyers as successful as they have been in achieving the results. Um, And I would expect us in the future to uh, respond to our investors' desires for a second vintage or something like that. And, um, you know, I think it will always be a big part of what we do.
0: Yeah, I've not come across it that regularly. I assume there's not huge competition in the traditional market for it.
1: There are some litigation funders out there, um, but many of our peers would do this out of a two or three billion master fund allocate a little portion to some mitigation funding deals, you know, we have a specialized team that just focuses on this particular subsection.
0: But I'm guessing when you set up Northwall Capital, um, m- maybe I'm wrong, um, you know, this wasn't high on your list of priorities, was it something that was relatively organic, you spotted the opportunity? We spotted the run.
1: opportunity, right? You know, when we heard that there was a settlement track record in Germany, we thought, wow, you know, that's, you know, we should try, you know, and, and, and be part of this, right, because you know, I always struggle with this binary risk of litigation funding. I, you know, you win or you lose, you lose 100% of your money or you generate good returns. And I struggle with that. So when you can point to a demonstrative uh, settlement track record, you know, then you have, you know, it just helps us underwrite the risk. We're not breaking legal ground, really, in any of the cases that we or are directly or indirectly involved in. Um, so, yes, we kind of fell into it. But this is part of the entrepreneurial spirit that we have here at Norfolk when we see an opportunity that's really interesting, um, you know, then we pursue it. And if it's too big for the fund, then we go to our investors and we speak to them. And what's interesting is that, you know, and where we have been really lucky as a firm, um, probably also through our co investment discussions in the earlier days of our existence, is that um, we have been lucky in having met a range of investors that are incredibly smart, um, have internal teams that can analyze Um, risk and can, you know, engage on individual ideas. Um, And that also, you know, we're willing to give us as a new firm a chance on some of these new tangential strategies. And, um, you know, that comes with a huge responsibility that we take very seriously uh, in trying to deliver good returns to them. But, um, you know,
0: our investor base has been very supportive over the years, and we are very grateful for that. I've already asked you about deal flow, so I don't want to push the point, but but the more we talk, the broader your um, brief looks from the outside, the more I think, um, uh, you know, compared to say like a, a private equity firm that's got its, you know, five corporate finance houses that it al- always brings its stuff and compared to a traditional private capital firm, they know where they're getting the deals from, but l- by and large, is it, would you say it's harder for you to or you have to work harder to source deals or think harder to source deals because you are so opportunistic and your situations really are special situations?
1: It's funny that you would think so. The opposite is true. So I would argue that for a private equity firm, it's much harder to find interesting deals flow. Because if I'm a company that's up for sale, or if I'm, you know, if we're trying to sell a company, we hire an advisor whose sole job it is to find as many people as possible to sell that particular deal to, to get the highest price. Um, same for lending deals. If I'm a private equity sponsor, I hire a corporate finance firm whose sole job it is to find as many possible lenders who will lend you the highest amount of money, you know, at the cheapest cost, with the uh, least amount of covenants and the most flexibility. And to us, that that doesn't, you know, offer, you know, particularly compelling, uh, differentiated sources of return, right? And as a new firm, we have to offer differentiation. We can't just be, we can't compete with direct lending fund 17 of one of our competitors um, and we don't want to. When you look at it from the side of a non-conforming borrower, using another example, a distressed hotel asset in Spain, trying to raise 20 million euros. You, if you go to any of the big brand names, BlackRock, Blackstone, KKR, Lone Star, Apollo, they have to write tickets that maybe start at 50, 75, 100 million euros and upwards. Um, and those are the brand names that you recognize. But I don't know if you heard about Northwall much before discussions you know, over the last few days, but um, you know, neither does the investment banker in a secondary city in Spain. So we tend to, provided that we can make sure that he knows we exist when we see deal flow, it is much less likely to be in a competitive situation than with others. So our job is primarily to make sure that people know we exist and that we treat people well so that they tell their other friends, their other colleagues that we are a reliable and predictable partner. Does that does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I buy it. Sounds credible. Last year we looked at I want to say 800, 900 transactions, right? right? And we close maybe six, seven, eight, right? So there's a huge amount of complete rubbish that goes in the top of the funnel. (laughs) And then we have to sift it through. And for that, we run a very methodical um, uh, process that consists of pipeline meetings, morning meetings, investment committees, interim memos, full memos. We run a very structured process to make sure that we pick really only those transactions that we think really are very interesting for us
0: oh so that's in so that's interesting because you' you know you' a, you're a small you're still a small organization you're how many people well 14 today will be
1: 17 by the end of the year just on the basis of the current hiring processes we're going through um, so we're growing both AUM and headcount quite quickly
0: but you've already got the structures in place that w- would in theory allow you to sca- keep scaling
1: for sure. And that was something that we did from the very beginning. So when we set up the firm, we were three founding partners. One is um, Ian, our chief, chief operating officer, and Alex, uh, who sits on the investment, time, the investment team and is, you know, effectively oversees you know, the, the investment team alongside me. And from the date of our second co-investment transaction, not the two and a half million euro one, but you know, the second one which is a little bigger, um, we set up institutional quality investment structures um, with proper infrastructure, um, independent boards of directors, you know, top four auditors. Um, and you know, we really made sure that the structure was investable from an institutional perspective. And then at the same time, we also started to implement the process. So even from those early days, if you ever saw a deal from Northwall, you always saw it in the same format with the same logo in the same place, you know, the same type of description, the same type of model output, the same everything and you know internally we always had the same processes from the very very beginning which are effectively processes uh that i took over from my previous experiences and where the other team members brought their own you know flavor in their own contributions to shape what is now our north wall process that works well for all of us
0: yeah Uh, are, are there lessons from the mainstream investment banking world that are applicable to what you do now
1: in that sense. There are. I mean, there are. There are a lot of lessons from the mainstream investment banking world, um, and there are also some that you know you probably don't want to take take on necessarily. So, you know, um, lessons are. You know, it's institutional compliance is very important. You know, we're very strict on, um, you know, anything related to uh, to compliance, as you would as you would imagine. Um, you know, but we try to still retain that small firm um, approach to things, um, where um, we have a flat hierarchy. Um, You know, we work very closely um, with the junior members on the deal team and trying to get things executed. I try, we try to have a collaborative working environment um, uh, that is purely uh, meritocratic um, with really no, um, you know, uh, you know, no, you know, uh, trying not to use a a curse word. You know, we have only friendly people allowed, let's call it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You want to work with the people you want to work with. And, you want to work with um, the people you want to work with. and You want to make sure that everybody, you know, works well together and uh, people work very hard, um, but also have the opportunity to succeed, to succeed uh, um, uh, if they do deliver. That's just yeah. kind of an interesting point, right? When you think about how do you build a team like this? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you encourage people, right? I think the challenge in our industry has always been that the better people get, the more likely they are to leave. And what I'm trying to encourage and what we are trying to build here is a place that has growth potential for everybody. And what's really interesting about that, and things that really give me pleasure, um, you know, in what I consider to be as important as the wins on the investment side and the capital raising side, is when I see people that started as junior member of our deal team, you know, effectively move from the non-investing side to the investing side, just because it's so good, mm. or, you know, from a fairly junior role on the investor relations team to what can become very quickly, a very senior role on the investor relations team. Um, and when you kind of see that progression, when you kind of realize that you've been part of shaping these people's careers and shaping actually their lives in a certain way on the professional side, at least, you know, that gives me a tremendous amount of pleasure. And it's something that I'm very, very proud of, right? And it means a lot to
0: yeah, I, I suppose one of the, the difficult things with the retention in private equity. I mean, I know as a, as a as an entrepreneur myself, I'm very jealous of my of my equity. And so when you set up a business, um, you know you, you, you're guarded of it. But in private equity, it's all about aligned incentives and kind of share you know sharing as you grow. And and it's getting that balance right in order to um, you know secure the people, retain the people you want to to retain and you know so very often the people that have grievances they say well the the founders were too greedy i had to move on
1: so ian alex and myself sit on the investment committee and we build consensus around everything and we work very well and very very closely together and i think it's important that um, everybody feels like they have a voice we take it one step further we invite the entire firm to the investment committee meetings and we actually invite people you know to you know ask questions and encourage it. in fact, um, in order to help us take better decisions. So they're right. observers.
0: They're not on the committee, but they're invited as observers.
1: They're non-voting members of the committee. Yeah, right. 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 But, you know, when, specifically when I look to the kind of more senior members on the investment team that are not on the IC, um, not voting members on the IC, you know, the way that we think about them as future partners of the firm is, you know, how do you contribute to this discussion around risk-taking as a right? And what are your views? And do you speak up? Do you care, right? Or are you just sitting there because you feel like you have to? I think that's very important because that's ultimately what we're looking for. And that also then, you know, uh, goes to, and and I'll come back to your question around allocation of profits, et cetera, at a later point, but that also goes to thinking a little bit about how you build your workforce. So um, if you just have a workforce that consists entirely of white males, I think you know you're going to have a homogeneity of kind of opinion so we really care about having you know uh diversity on our team you know and you know to kind of build you know a little bit more of a differentiated opinion um and to have
0: people bring in different points of view if that makes sense okay so you know i i i, I com- you completely convinced me on that um it's not just about the money um i would i completely agree with you that if you take people if you allow people to be part of decision-taking or at least have their say, then that means a great deal in the work environment. Of course it does. I'm wrong all the time,
1: right? like, Let's just be very honest about that. So are my two founding partners. Um, so is everybody. So just, you know, the approach has to be, you know, I'm not right. You know, somebody else might have mm. a very important piece of information. So, you know, we incur- I want to hear from the person that disagrees a lot more than I want to hear from the person that's going to tell me what you know I already know, right? And that's how we mm. avoid errors. Yeah. And then we're going to make mistakes. Yeah. That's a complete given, right? Because everybody makes mistakes. Investing is about you know having more winners than losers, but you're going to have losers. But then the next step is about looking at your mistakes, analyzing them, understanding them, and trying not to repeat them. Yeah. Right. And um, and that's really something. Um, you know, that you can only do in a culture where mistakes are, you know, viewed as learning opportunities, and where you don't find yourself in a yeah. situation where mistakes be, lead to some sort of punishment, which should be ridiculous. Yeah. Um, coming back on your point on incentivization. So so on that incentivization, um, you know, we have kind of two things to give away. We have equity ownership in the, in, in the parent that we can give away over time, and then we have carry in the funds, and we try to be generous on the carry in the funds, but I actually think What is much more interesting than that is that Northwall, because of our approach of having a diversified master fund um, with these ancillary potential single strategy fund structures, litigation funding, Spanish real estate portfolios, um, uh, Amazon roll-up strategy, if that does materialize in in such a scale, um, the person that comes up with that strategy, if they one day say, I would like to focus on this strategy, rather than them leaving to do it somewhere else, you know, they know and they should know that at Northwall, they can then focus on running that strategy because we'd rather keep them here than have them do it somewhere. Else.
0: And, and so just in terms of your, you know, where you go from here, you built kind of pragmatically, you said, you know, incrementally, you've learned as you've, as you've gone along. But do you have uh, like, some, you know, some five year plan or you mentioned all the, the, the big KKRs and Apollos of this world? What's, 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 the, what's the, the scale of the ambition um, for Northwall as, as an organization, but also that feeds into, you know, the market opportunity because that obviously needs to be there and, and it needs to grow with you.
1: So we, that, that's a very good point. So, um, you know, what's our ambition? We have huge ambitions, right? We want to build um, a multi-strategy, private credit platform, right? That is scalable. And what that will mean over time Is that we will need to expand from looking at the esoteric ideas into tangential you know more plain vanilla opportunities because ultimately our investors once they trust us on the esoteric ideas you know will want to you know deploy more capital with us and the only way to really accomplish that is by also pursuing some of these ideas and using the team today that is, you know, fantastic and so good at analyzing this complex risk. You know, they have the capability to also help us grow and oversee some of those, you know, other strategies, so to speak. So our objective, and we are three years in, you know, in what is going to be the last job that I will ever have. Four years in, the last job that I will ever have, um, you know, is to build kind of a a platform, um, a credit platform uh, that takes advantage of. You know, the kind of various niches and idiosyncratic, you know, areas of the market that are not yet well covered, but surely over
0: time will continue to grow alongside us. How, how, the way that you look at an investment opportunity, how would you say it differs from the norm or from your competitors?
1: It's interesting, right? Because um, had you asked me this question when we set up to launch Northwall, um, I would have given you a very different answer to what I'm going to give you today. Um, even though we operate in private credit, uh, what I have found us using more and more um, is advanced data analytics tools that um, you know, we would have never used before. Uh, specifically, um, we now have um, three data analysts on our team um, who have extensive experience in synthesizing very large data sets. And that really, um, it, it was something that we learned over time. Um, one of our earliest strategies um, involved the acquisition of, um, again, you will of course guess, very odd, idiosyncratic uh, types of real estate portfolio. So very specific issues attached to each individual unit. And as that business scaled, from first deal was 4 million euros, you know, we deployed 150 million euros into that strategy. Um, as that business scaled, we ended up owning thousands of apartments. Now, if you own thousands of apartments, that's thousands of broker visits. Thousands of sets of keys, thousands of payments, thousands of potential valuations, thousands and thousands. And the amount of data that we got back was so vast um, that we hired a person to help us analyze these data sets and effectively try and look for trends, you know, you know, not just valuation trends, but you know, which area is more liquid than other areas? How long does it take to do this? Which service area is better than the other, which broker sells better than the other? And over time, as we started to learn what to do with large amounts of data, we realized actually that our borrowers are increasingly recording much larger amounts of data. And so we now make it our habit to ask for the raw data. And we have two people on our team that are using this data to help drive the investment decision. So when we're looking, for example, at lending against a loan portfolio, you know, this is no longer done, you know, simply in a, a Excel, but we use, you know, SQL, we use Python, you know, you, we use, you know, programming language to effectively analyze this information. I have no idea how to do this. I will very happily admit, uh, but we've hired some people that, uh, that are, you
0: know, really good at it. That, yeah, so that's fascinating. So how, how, how do you um, go about hiring people who have an expertise that, you know, it's, it's hard for you to judge? It's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard, right? You're hiring somebody to do something
1: that you don't know how to do. Um, you know, we make a habit of trying to hire people that are better than us. Um, but here, you know, we really build it like we do everything, step by step. We had one individual who was very good, very reliable. We added another layer. Um, we hired another individual, very good, very reliable. And then we started to backfill some of the roles um, around them. Um, but it's been my plan, actually, to sit down with them and ask them for you know a one-day crash course on how to actually do it rather than just read the data um and i uh we're, 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 we tend to be too busy for that
0: i i noticed from the reflection in the picture behind you i think you're in the office right
1: i am in the office that's right yeah. is it
0: is it relatively normal where you are is everyone in the
1: office these days we're, we're in london no not everybody's in the office Days And uh, it comes back to that great debate. You know, should we be in the office or should we be working remotely? And, um, you know, you know, I'm vaccinated. Um, You know, many, if not all of my colleagues are vaccinated. You know, we kind of operate fairly strict limits on who can come to the office. Um, And it worked remarkably well working remotely. Uh, But I think it's hit its limits, right? As we've hired more team members, it's become more difficult. Uh, junior members of the team don't get the necessary experience this is the same story that you hear everywhere but you know what I'm really missing I'm also missing the chatter between them and so I have no idea sometimes if my colleagues are super happy super stressed mm-hmm. super busy um, or you know if we're doing a good job managing the team and you know because we genuinely care about the people that we work with um, you know you know we you know, we've, uh, we're concerned by that. Yeah. Um, what we've done to address it is we um, gave everybody a root band, which effectively measures, helps people measure their recovery and encourages them, you know, to think about recovery and sleep and rest. Uh, we gave them sessions with personal trainers uh, to make sure, you know, that they had somebody to ask, should they choose to do more exercise? Uh, we've held some talks on mental wellness, etc. Um, you know, to try and address some of these issues. But I cannot wait for the moment that at least we're all free to come back to the office, you know, even if we choose not to do so.
0: Amen to that. Well, Fabian, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks very much. Thank you, Russ. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the Private Capital channel for alternative investment professionals. Thanks for listening.